Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. We're in a Sunday night worship series um, where we're reading through the King David cycle from 2 Samuel, and we're thinking about King David in our context of cancel culture, because there are a few points along the way where David surely would have just been canceled. Like, we don't talk about that guy anymore, but here he is in our Bible. He's complicated. Um, our ancestors in faith revered him, and but they told a lot of stories about him that were less than flattering. And uh, we're, we've been sort of picking up, looking at the Israelite monarchy after the death of Saul, the first king. And uh, the last couple of weeks, we're talking about David's administration, how he's kind of getting all, everything set up for his own kingship. It takes some time. He's got some plans. And so uh, we're reading tonight from 2 Samuel chapter 6. Um, This reading is rated PG-13 for violence and nudity, and a content consideration for the sermon in a few minutes, uh, there will be a mention of sexual harassment um, in the sermon. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David and all the people with him set out and went from Baalah Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. They carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God and Ahio went in front of the ark. David and all the house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah reached out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him there because he reached out his hand to the ark, and he died there beside the ark of God. David was angry because the Lord had burst forth with an outburst upon Uzzah, so that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day. He said, how can the ark of the Lord come into my care? So David was unwilling to take the ark of the Lord into his care in the city of David. Instead, David took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. It was told King David, you know, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing in those. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, 
He sacrificed an ox and a fatling. Mm. David danced before the Lord with all his might. You didn't do it. No, my feelings are hurt. I'm just going to try it again. David danced before the Lord with all his might. If you're at home, you're just going to have to imagine what we're doing. I'm sorry. David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and offerings of well-being before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the offerings of well-being, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed food among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women. Oh, how nice of him. To each a cake of bread and a portion of meat and a cake of raisins. Mm. Then all the people went back to their homes. David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David, and she said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants' maids, as any vulgar fellow might shamelessly uncover himself. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord, who, by the way, chose me in the place of your father and all his household to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, that I have danced before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in my own eyes. But by the maids of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael the daughter of Saul had no child to the day of her death. This, too, is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. When I was a, a little kid in the 70s, I know, just picture it and let's move on. <clears throat> Somebody gave me a rabbit's foot on a keychain for my birthday. Never mind that I didn't have any keys. I was like eight. Have you ever seen one of these? Hello, creepy. The, the long, soft fur was dyed like bright blue, the color of no rabbit found in nature. But if I clutched it hard, I could feel the little rabbit claws that were buried in all that fur. Ugh. The packaging on the thing assured me that it was lucky. And that if I carried it with me everywhere I went, it would protect me from danger and grant me wishes. I was skeptical and scandalized, too rational to believe in superstition, too religious to invest any ordinary object with that kind of power. Yes, at eight years old. The Ark of the Covenant that we're reading about tonight in 2 Samuel 6 was not altogether unlike a lucky rabbit's foot for Israel. Time's infinity, you know? On one hand, it was just a really pretty box constructed out of acacia wood, covered in gold plate with those sculpted cherubim on either end of the lid whose wings like 
reached out toward each other and touched to form a little platform. On the other hand, the ark was manufactured according to specs given by God's own self to Moses on Mount Sinai. And it was a mobile storage unit for the stone tablets on which the Ten Commandments were chiseled and some other cool artifacts from the Israelites' desert wanderings. And that angel wings platform, that was intended as a stool for either the booty or the feet of God's own self. It's disputed which. Whenever God came to visit, in other words, this box is where God sat. And boy, was it lucky. During all the battles by which the Israelites conquered Canaanite territory, the priests of the Lord carried the Ark of the Covenant ahead of the army on long poles. They could carry it and lift it up. They carried the very presence of God to the front line of battle. And wherever the Ark went, the Israelites mostly won. Not every time, but lots of times. And so the people revered the ark, and they took very good care of it. Over a few generations, however, the sort of superstitious, magic-y feeling they had about the ark kind of faded away until, in Steven Spielberg's imagination, the Nazis dug it up in hopes of harnessing its power for their imperial world-conquering ambitions. That's what it had always been for, right? In Bible times, though, the Israelites became a settled people with a government and a standing army. Less magic, more military strategy. The ark was put into storage as a relic of their scrappy beginnings with Abinadab, the archivist, just the latest in a long series of citizens whose job it was to keep it dusted and dry. David, though, the new-ish king, whose kingship was ever so slightly contested, working with his political consultants, I'm sure, was thinking up all kinds of ways to signal that he was the rightful king, a powerful king, God's chosen king, the right man for the job. So he had conquered his new capital city, Jerusalem, and then named it City of David after himself. And he had reclaimed his wife, Michael, the previous king's daughter. Michael had been given to David in marriage many years before when her father, Saul, and her brother, Jonathan, were both still alive, and Saul still liked David. But Saul had taken Michael back as his animosity toward David grew, and he had given her in marriage to someone else thus signaling his unwillingness for David to succeed him on the throne. So when David finally got Saul's throne, he wanted Michael back. Not because he needed a wife. He had several already. But because having her by his side would lend ever so slightly more legitimacy to his reign as the son-in-law, if posthumously, of the former king. Let us pause here to grieve with our sister Michael, stripped of dignity, robbed of agency, first by her father, then by her husband, 
and with her all the girls and women around the world to this day whose marriages are arranged for the economic and political advantage of men. Along with city and wife, David wanted that ark. He wanted that old symbol of God's power and presence to come under his command. A team mascot, if you will, by which his administration would be recognized as endorsed by none other than the big guy upstairs. Now, I realize that that is a rather cynical reading of David's field trip to fetch the ark. We know David to have been devout in his worship of the one true God. And so it is possible that he saw the ark's retrieval as a renewal of Israel's national religious identity. But the story of Uzzah's death by divine outburst, the homecoming parade wrecked by God's own hand, asks us to hear this story a bit more critically. Because anybody who had spent any time in the annals of Ark history would know that it should have been elevated for travel on those long poles carried by dressed-up priests, not strapped to a trailer pulled by lumbering work animals. When the wheels of that cart hit a bump and the ark was jostled as if to fall off, Uzzah, definitely not a priest and definitely not qualified to touch the relic according to the rules given long ago, reached out to steady it and zap. Uzzah's face melted or something. Anyway, Uzzah was no more. And I know, I, I mean, that sounds perfectly awful, really unfair by our sensibilities. Why would God do that to a guy who was just trying to help? But maybe within the world of this story, God is here asserting that you can't just go get God and carry God where you want God and set God down where it's convenient for you and then expect God to give you everything you want. Oh, you can run the Jebusites out of their city and you can get Michael back from her second husband, but you cannot run the God of Israel like that, David. Or if you try, you have to be ready for the consequences. Is God is still God, even if you're schlepping God across the countryside like old furniture in a rented U-Haul. Well, David decides, after all, that he's not really ready for those consequences. The narrator reports three reactions on the king's part upon Uzzah's untimely undoing. He's angry. Verse 8, David was angry because the Lord had burst forth with an outburst upon Uzzah. So that place is called Perez Uzzah or outburst Uzzah <laughs> to this day. It just didn't seem fair to David either. Uzzah's death kind of rained on his parade, and is that any way for a king's parade to end? And then he's afraid, verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day. He said, how can the ark of the Lord come into my care? For real, maybe it wasn't only superstition that the ark was super powerful. Even Indiana Jones knew to be more careful than that. 
And then finally, he is unwilling in verse 10. So David was unwilling to take the ark of the Lord into his care in the city of David. Instead, David took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, the unlucky bastard. I, I added that last part. <clears throat> Angry, afraid, unwilling. Angry, afraid, unwilling. Like a lot of people in this room, I could confess to all three of those feelings toward God sometimes. <laughs> I have been angry at God for what God has or more often has not done, like now, when the world is badly in need of a reset that I'm not sure as humans are capable of achieving on our own. I have been afraid upon remembering again that God can't be manipulated by my righteous inclinations or my righteous indignation that God might want more from me than either of those. <laughs> I have been unwilling to talk to God or be with God or think about God or give up anything for God. Like, if this is who God is, maybe God is not worth it. Who's got time for that? Perhaps it's heartening to you, as it is to me, that recorded in the pages of our sacred text is our ancestor David's anger, fear, and unwillingness upon encountering God's irascible, uncontrollable, and frankly, unlikable nature. As in real relationship, no bullshit ever, when the relationship is real... It doesn't have to end when one or both parties does something wholly unlikable. Anger, fear, and unwillingness to go any further can be the reality for a season. They don't have to be the end of the story. As they are not in our story tonight, after some time passes, David hears that Obed-Edom and his family are actually faring quite well with the dangerous but lucky rabbit's foot in their house. He decides to try again to consolidate all that good luck in his house. And it seems like this time he treats the travel with a bit more respect. It seems like the ark is carried by persons this time. I'm imagining they found or remade those poles that make human, locomotion, human powered locomotion without touching the ark possible. And after just six steps, Five, six, with everybody in the party holding their breath, I imagine, to see whether any faces will melt due to outbursts from the Lord, they stop to offer extra large sacrifices in thanksgiving. They are somewhat more attentive, I'm saying, to the possibility that indeed God's power can be invited, but not coerced. And God seems to be okay with that this time around. When David is sure that God has given them the all clear, he gives a signal to the conductor of the band that he's brought with him, and the music starts up, and before you know it, King David himself has stripped down to his skivvies and begun to boogie his way home. Now, I say skivvies because that thing that he's wearing, that linen ephod, is not much more covering than, say, that gown they give you to wear in the hospital. You know the one. Just think in this case of, well, you could Google it, Google image, ephod, you'll find it. 
Think of wearing an apron that goes over your head, covers a little bit of your chest, comes down over your lap in the front, and also over your boutoir in the back. But listen, it's not sewn together on the sides. It's just open. It's hanging loose. It's meant to be belted into place over a full-body robe. It's definitely not meant for wearing alone an ephod. It's definitely not designed for um, vigorous dancing. And that's what David is doing, right? He's dancing, quote, with all his might, the narrator tells us. And one cannot help but wonder whether that might be yet another biblical euphemism for yet another strategy by this king to show off what he's got. (laughs) I mean, think of a football player grabbing his crotch in the end zone while he points at the sky in a bizarre cocktail. I know, I know. It's too good to pass up. Whenever it happens, I'm going to say it. A bizarre cocktail of religious piety and over-the-top masculinity. Or, to be fair, think of a halftime show nip slip where vigorous dancing dislodges critical clothing. Maybe an accident? Maybe not so much? Just picture David twerking. (laughs) Or grinding or thrusting, barely dressed, in his linen ephod, drawing all eyes unto himself and his royal endowment. (laughs) You've humiliated yourself, Michael, who is well acquainted with humiliation, accuses him when he gets near enough for her effective house arrest to allow a conversation. Everybody saw, David, everybody saw your junk. Even the servant girls in your own home have you no shame. Here is the thing, friends. No. No. He has none. David has no shame. At least not yet. At least not for this. Look, he's been dancing all day, hosting a gigantic party for every Israelite who could get the day off. He's got the Ark of the Covenant back, installed in the city he named for himself. He's exhausted, but he is the king, damn it. And he's working hard to be recognized as more and more kingly every day, and he doesn't want to hear that his exuberant expression of relief and joy at the successful completion of his errand is something he should be embarrassed about. Doesn't want to hear it. Now listen. If you have ever been the victim of sexual harassment, if you have ever been the recipient of a dick pic you didn't ask for, if you have ever had your ordinary life interrupted by someone who gets off on exposing their private parts in public, that's inexcusable. Michael, we could could decide it tonight. Michael could be the patron saint of all people who have survived the thoughtlessness of those who willfully abuse power differentials and tread on the basic rules of consent and mutuality. And I think her story could empower anyone who has suffered the disempowerment of someone else's rude, lewd, uninvited expression of sexuality. But, and... David has a word to say here, too. He claps back at Michael for her assumption of vulgarity on his part. He insists 
that whatever humbling he deserves for his dancing, he deserves from the Lord, the one for whom the dance was intended. You think that was shameful, he says? Listen, if I'm lucky, it'll be more shameful still in days to come. If I'm lucky, there will be more occasions to cut loose to lose my shit, to let go every shred of royal decorum. If I'm lucky, God's power will bring me to my knees in gratitude. God's presence will strip me to the skin in vulnerability. God will expose me as a man, just a man, undeserving of the overwhelming presence of the deity of the universe in my home. If I'm lucky, Michael, today is not the last day that I will dance recklessly, shamelessly, in recognition that nothing in this world is as precious to me as the God of our ancestors. And I picture him walking away from her, turning, turning after a couple steps to add just one more thing. Just one more thing, Michael. Don't, don't worry about what the servant girls think of me, says our complicated, chaotic king. After what they saw today, by them I shall be held in honor. This guy, this guy, he is so infuriating to me. I am so glad for every day that I do not have anyone like this David in my life. Can I get an amen? Amen. But can we also find it in ourselves to resonate with his frustration here as people who have our own stories of being shamed for being too excited, too demonstrative of joy, and as people who have our own stories of being told that our bodies Our bodies are the locus for so much of that shame. I I asked in last week's Bible and Beer Bible study for people to tell me the first time that they realized that their bodies could or would be sources of shame. You know, like the recognition of their own nakedness, a la Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, suddenly ashamed in front of each other in desperate need of clothing to, as we say, cover their shame. And so at Bible and Beer on Tuesday, we remembered together the times that a youth pastor would chastise adolescent girls for showing too much skin and thus endangering the boys' purity. And the way the same purity culture told boys that they would forever be held captive by their bodies' shameful sexual responses. You know, my own mother was called out for bringing her two preschool girls to church in snow pants rather than skirts during a raging ice storm in the West Texas panhandle in January on a Wednesday night, friends. (laughs) We got sent home that night. Like God's own self had to be protected from the outline of our little legs. Doesn't that maybe say more about the person doing the shaming than the one who's supposed to be ashamed? Yes, it does. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know that I'm saying more than one thing here. I'm like the Bible in that respect. Michael is not wrong to be offended. But David's answer 
is pretty dang good. He's like, not everything about my body, as fabulous as it is, is sexual, Michael. I got down and dirty for the Lord today. I danced for God with all my might. You better believe it. I'm not ashamed. I'm just not. Suck on that. And while we may not love everything about this guy, we're going to have to admit that we feel kind of called out by him here. Maybe we've been more influenced than we thought by the reckless sexuality of our time where bodies are routinely and alternately elevated and denigrated as sexual playgrounds, nothing more. Maybe we're more ashamed than we'd like to admit, more influenced by purity culture than we thought if we just can't let David have his dance before the Lord. At the very least, this story calls up the complications of our own embodiment and the shame that comes with it. To which David would say, loosen up. Like the scripture says, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might, if you know what I mean. And don't let anybody make you feel embarrassed about that. To which Michael would respond, yeah, yeah, okay, but could you just tie the sash a little tighter, please? We don't have to see all your love for the Lord every time. And I'm thinking that maybe together they're more right than they were alone. You know, it would not be the first time and definitely not the last that two people doing the best they could, neither of them getting it 100% right all on their own, could find their way together to a better road forward. What I want for myself, I want for you too. A sense of God's power and presence that inspires reverence and joy. And the trust that our whole selves are loved by God and employable for praise. I want to feel as free in my fabulous 52-year-old body as David did on that day, dancing like nobody or everybody was watching. And I want to heed Michael's call for a baseline of respect for each other's dignity and agency. I imagine we've all got a long way to go to get all of that. But I'm thinking maybe like Michael and David, we've got a much better chance of getting there together. Thanks be to God. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal, or use your credit card or bank account. 
any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.